Uh, again, welcome, especially if you're new or you're visiting, a few new folks here. It's good to have you. Um, we, we've been in a series since the beginning of the year on um, the image of God. It's called Created in the Image of God, Finding Our Place in the Cosmos, so knowing our place in the cosmos. And uh, we, we continue with that series this morning, and I just want to recap a little bit. Um, we've been reflecting on what is it, really this question, what does it mean to be a human being? And... Um, as understood as, as image bearers, people who, who are created in God's image. And we've, we've looked on um, a number of topics, like um, to be an image bearer is to have a body. Um, to be uh, an image bearer is to be a creature with limits that are good. Uh, to be uh, created in the image of God is to be male and female. Uh, to be created in the image of God is to be created for work. Um, and this morning, I want to reflect and on this theme of to be created in the image of God is to be created free. It is to have freedom. Um, and our, our text, though, uh, we're also in Lent, right? So we're sort of shifting our focus a little bit uh, from just, um, you know, the original creation, but to creation that's fallen. And part of understanding what it means to be a human being is understanding the way that sin and the fall has affected the way we experience our humanity. Uh, things aren't the way they ought to be. And this morning, uh, the theme of freedom is an appropriate one because um, we see that theme of freedom really stand out um, in Genesis 3, which is the, the story of the fall. So I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but um, I want to read uh, the first and the second part. So hear God's word to us this morning from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the garden? Any, I'm sorry, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to her, said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the, Lord, the woman whom you gave to me she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the, man, the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then jumping down to verse 20. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for the man, Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of the Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of, to the tree of life. Join me in prayer. Lord, we ask for your light and illumination this morning to understand uh, what it means to be creatures created in your image that are free, but also that are fallen. Um, instruct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To be created in God's image is to be free. It is to have freedom. And, and as creatures, as human beings, we are endowed with freedom. And this is, this is arguably the thing that distinguishes us from the rest of animal life. Animals do not live with a sense of freedom and open possibility towards the world, but rather seem to be determined in their behavior according to natural instinct. Freedom, um, as I'm using it here, presumes a capacity for, for reasoning, for moral reflection and deliberation about what we will or will not do. And it would seem that animals do not possess this kind of orientation towards the world. Um, now, you might say, well, you know, a lion has you know, free choice as to which gazelle he will chase down and eat. Uh, but a lion doesn't have free choice about whether he will eat gazelles or not, right? Um, his nature and his in instincts d dictate what he wants to do and his desires uh, to eat gazelle, right? And so the lion isn't free for moral reasons to stop eating gazelle. That just would never occur to a lion that that would be something that he should do, right? Um, however, human beings, on the other hand, we are different, right? We, we're free to make choices. Um, about what we will do or not do, and uh, what we will eat or not eat, right? That, that seems to transcend mere instinct of our natures. Um, see, again, a lion isn't free to think differently about his diet, but, but human beings are, right? We make choices all the time about you know, our diet and what we will and will not eat. And what's really interesting is that it is precisely with a view towards what to eat or what not to eat um, that, that this question of human freedom first comes into view in the Bible, right? Remember the story in the garden in chapter 2? Let me just read a couple verses from there. So out of the ground, the Lord God made, up to, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You, sh you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God makes a garden full of trees with, with uh, fruit that is very appetizing and pleasing and good for food. And God highlights two trees in particular, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, says, you can eat of all the trees, but this one tree the tree of knowledge. And, and again, this is before the fall, right? God puts two trees and says, you can't eat just of this one, right? And again, what this symbolizes here for us is 
just this possibility of human freedom and choice. And, and that this question of freedom is at the very heart of what it means to be human from the very beginning. From the very beginning. So, not only is freedom at the heart of what it means to be human, but there's also a sense that, that our, our special dignity as human bearers um, is, is grounded in this, this idea of, of being free. And, you know, you don't have to think very hard or long about this in the light of the war, right, um, in Ukraine. Um, and the dignity of the Ukrainian people to be free as a nation, right? There's so much at stake here. What gives us dignity as human beings is freedom. Humans are most like God with the right exercise of freedom. We are created to be free in our relationship um, to creation as God is free in his relationship to creation, right? Um, there's an analogy here, but there's a big distinction between our freedom and God's freedom. Um, see, God, God is free, but in a very different way than the way we are free. See, God is self-existent, and God is infinite. And so God is the source and ground of his own freedom, right? But as human beings, we're not God, right? We are not the source of our own freedom. We cannot give ourselves freedom. Our freedom is grounded in God's freedom. Our freedom is grounded in God's freedom. You could say that human freedom, properly understood, is, is created freedom. It's created. Um, in a sense, you could say it's bounded. Um, I think when we think about freedom, oftentimes we think of it just as a capacity to do something, right? Just to make choices. Um, but in the Bible, and, and this is really clear in Genesis, um, that freedom is, isn't just to do whatever we want, right? Simply that I'm free is what matters. It is always freedom for. Freedom is all, in the Bible, freedom is always freedom for. Freedom for um, God. Freedom for one another. Freedom for a relationship. Freedom for um, loving relationship. This, this is really important. And I, I don't want to get too abstract. I know I always realize when I, I talk about freedom, it's one of those things that we talk about and take for granted, but when you really start to reflect on it, it can get very, very abstract and hard to, to kind of follow. But just hang with me for a second here. Because I, I want to just briefly contrast this idea of freedom for loving relationship with the way we, as modern people, think about freedom. Um, when we think about freedom as modern uh, people, we think about freedom as it doesn't have any, it, it has any specific content. What matters about freedom is simply that I'm free. It doesn't matter what I choose, right? So it's, a, it's an understanding of freedom that doesn't really have any content. And the only thing, about, only thing that's important about being free in the modern way I'm thinking about it is simply that I can choose. So what I choose doesn't matter, simply that I can choose is what's important. Um, but, but again, this is, this is a very problematic understanding of freedom. Um, because it presumes that you could use your freedom for all kinds of things that you weren't created for. And again, the Bible's understanding of freedom is it's always freedom for, freedom first and foremost for God. You are created by God, you're created for God, and you're given freedom to be in relationship with God. And then th this sort of just flows down in our relationship to one another and our relationship to creation. Um, 
biblical freedom has a very definite content, and the content is love. And that, that's the importance of that reading, the sacred reading that Paul, of Paul, right? Love is the content of freedom. Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, or don't use your freedom selfishly, in other words, but through love serve one another. So the sum, the positive content of freedom is love. We use our freedom for love. Now, one could imagine a world in which God creates human beings without freedom, right? God could have created us like the rest of the animals, in which our behavior was always perfectly aligned and corresponded with with our instincts. And yet God chooses to make us free, and he endows us with freedom. And this freedom is is a capacity for for a kind of self-transcendence, to get outside of ourselves or reflect back on decisions and choices, to reflect on how we relate to the world and one another and God. Um, See, God is the one who loves in freedom. God is the one who loves in freedom, and and God desired creatures as image bearers to reciprocate this similar kind of love. It's a love in freedom. There's there's a quote in here of C.S. Lewis that nicely captures this theme of how freedom and love are related to one another. I'll read just a little bit of it. He says, free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness of joy or worth of, I'm sorry, possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of robots, of creatures that worked like machines would hardly worth be creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in the ecstasy of love and delight. And for that, they've got to be free. So this is a a very important principle here, is that freedom is a necessary condition for love, right? Freedom is a necessary condition for love. You can't force another person to love you. To do that is actually basically to ask them to do something other than love, right? This is such a fundamental thing. Um, Freedom is necessary for love. And so God is the God who loves in freedom. And God desired creatures that loved him in freedom in a similar way. And so this brings us to a very important principle right from the beginning here, which is The highest expression of human freedom is to love God. The highest expression of human freedom is to love God. Our freedom, again, is never given for another purpose other than God, because he's the one who created it, right? We were created by God and for God. And yet, because of the nature of love, again, God didn't want to create us like robots to just love him without choice. are you familiar with this novel? But it's made it a couple different times in films. The Stepford Wives. The Stepford Wives was sort of a story about these husbands that kind of get together and um, they want these wives that are, that are docile and submissive and do everything they want them to do. And they kill off their wives and they replace them with sort of basically cyborg robot wives, right? And it's this idea, it brings up this question of freedom is what is true love, right? See, God is not a Stepford God or a God that could have just pre-programmed us to do what he wanted, but wants us to love us from freedom, right? God does not force love, and yet never, and here's the paradox, and here's the difficulty. God doesn't force us to love us, but 
you're never more fully human than when you're loving God. You never have more dignity as a human person when you're loving God. Because, you know, freedom is given for realizing this relationship. This relationship with God. Before uh, the fall, before sin came into the world, our freedom um, was our capacity to realize this relationship of God and love. Um, But after the fall, something gets... Um, happens to the way we experience our freedom, it gets distorted. Our freedom gets pointed in the wrong direction. It gets pointed away from God, and it gets pointed towards ourselves, such that the natural expression of freedom is no longer to love God. <laughs> that is not our bent. The natural expression of freedom is to, to kind of to love ourselves outside of God and without God. Um, the story of Genesis 3 is is really the story of the undoing of freedom, of true freedom. And the, and the whole story turns really on, on this, this act of disobedience, um, this free act of disobedience to not eat of the tree which God commanded them not to eat of. And that the consequences of what we see here is, is the undoing of freedom or the freedom being unbound, right? When I use the idea of freedom bound, I mean, it seems like a contradiction in terms. Um, But again, to be a creature with freedom is to have created freedom. It's a freedom for a specific purpose. And what happens in the fall is our freedom comes undone. It comes unbound. Uh, But before we look at that that story of how it happens and what it means, I, I I want you to consider the image of perfect freedom within the Garden of Eden. It's the very last scene before chapter three. Um, It is right after God creates the woman from the side of the man and brings them together in union, right? And there's this kind of marital union that that is there. And it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were unashamed. Man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. The man and the woman, in the dignity of their freedom, were able to stand before one another Naked, unashamed, and free. And I think that this, this, is, this is a picture of perfect freedom. To be naked and unashamed. That's a picture of perfect freedom. Um, because it's a freedom for loving relationship. It's a freedom for, to be oneself without shame in the world. To know and to be known, to love and to love, to be loved without shame. And so the irony in the story in chapter 3 is that um, in eating, in this sort of defiant act of freedom, in eating from the tree of knowledge, instead of becoming more free, we actually become less free. (laughs) We become less free. We, as human beings, God created us to rule over and and to bring, have dominion over all of the beasts of the field and all of creation. But in fact, what ends up happening is that we subordinate ourselves to the creation. And this is the significance of the role that the serpent plays in the story. Um, that first verse, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, it's very common to interpret um, the serpent as Satan. Um, and, you know, later on, there's a way that we can read that back into the story, but we kind of get off the rails here if we, we go, well, this is Satan tempting the, the first human beings. Because 
the nowhere in the Genesis text is it, does it have any concept of Satan or, any, and, or that this is an angelic being. It's quite the opposite. Uh, the text wants us to know that the serpent is a creature, <laughs> a very crafty creature, a creature that seems to be able to talk to human beings, but a creature nevertheless, that the Lord God has made, right? Um, and I think, I think this is important, too, when, you, when you're thinking about this story, because sometimes the way the story of the fall gets told, it's human beings, and we make this fateful choice, and we're caught between God and Satan, right? It's like these two supernatural beings, right? And we're having to choose which one we're going to throw our lot in with. And we, we end up going with the, the, the evil supernatural being. But this is, this is to lead us in all kinds of bad directions because uh, the serpent is a creature. And in the order of creation, we were above the serpent. We had dominion over the serpent. And yet what happens as we listen to the serpent and we respond and take the serpent's advice is we put ourselves under the serpent. We become, le- we in a sense, you know, give up our, our God-given uh, role, freedom, right? And what does the serpent say? The serpent um, first creates confusion about God's command not to eat, right? Did God actually say you shall need to not eat of the tree, in, of any tree in the garden, right? God said you could only not eat of one tree, right? <laughs> uh, but the serpent, again, he's trying to confuse things. So Eve clarifies things, but actually gets a little bit wrong. See, God never said you couldn't touch the, the tree. Just says you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge, right? And so already there, there's confusion about what God said or what God didn't say. But then the con- serpent continues to sow doubt. And then begins to suggest that in forbidding, that God in forbidding us from eating of the tree that God's withholding something. God's holding something back that you, you deserve. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, right? And this, this comment gets to the heart of the matter. Eating of the tree will make you like God. Eating of the tree will make you like God. This, this is the temptation of freedom, right? The temptation of freedom, of the misuse of it, is that we become like God. Not as image bearers as we're meant to be, but we become God. We become our own gods, right? Um, and this is like, if you want to boil down sin, the nature of sin to, to its essence, um, it is this. We want to be like God. We want to put ourselves in the place of God. We want to be the moral center of the universe, defining good and evil. Now, what makes eating the tree um, an act of disobedience was not that the tree itself was evil. Again, this is a very important point. There's nothing evil about the tree. God created all things good. What's evil is the way we use the tree. <laughs> we misuse the tree. God said, don't eat of it. You can look at it, you can even touch it, but don't eat of the tree, right? And the disobedience was our refusal to take God at his word. It was our refusal to accept the boundaries of what God had put in place and how God had ordered the world. And so when we eat of the tree, it says it's the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what we do is we, we take to ourselves something that only belongs to God. And the thing that only belongs to God is is 
is the ability to define good and evil. And so what the, what the tree represents is a kind of a declaration, us eating from the tree is kind of our declaration of independence. It is us saying, Lord, no, we take to ourselves the right to define existence, what is good and evil. And we put ourselves in the place of God. We want the world without God, without God's order, without God's wisdom. That is what is kind of represented in eating of that tree. And sin is choosing your own reality. Sin is choosing your own reality. God said, if you eat of the tree, you will die. But we refuse to believe that, and we ate of it anyways. And, And here's the great danger of being a creature. We're endowed with freedom as creatures. But we can use our freedom to act and live out lies and falsehoods. I mean, it's an incredible thing. Um, no other creature can do this. No other creature can, no lion or bird or fish or a- anything. No other creature can live against its nature. Only human beings can do that, right? We can, we can um, live contrary to our nature. We can create and construct our own reality that is alternative actually to what is true or real or just or good. And, this, and, and we can call this freedom. And, but this, you know, this is not real freedom, right? This is actually not real freedom because this is a freedom that always ends in death. You know, this idea of freedom as, as me and you kind of constructing our own reality, choosing our own reality is, is really at the heart so much of our culture and society at a very high level. I quote this frequently, but it just, it so captures the essence of how we as Americans and Western people think about our freedom, and it actually comes from uh, former Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy from this very famous ruling on abortion Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and he's defending um, Roe v. Wade, and he says this, he says, at the heart of liberty, freedom, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Right, that's freedom. Freedom is, is my right to define reality. And what's astounding here is what we're talking about here is not uh, something that is um, non-tangible or just spiritual. It's actually like defining like, is an unborn child in the womb a human being or not? <laughs> right? And Kennedy is saying that we, to freedom is, is my right to define whether it is a human being or not, right? And we're, we're talking about a body. We're talking about something real. We're not simply talking about sort of abstract truths about what we think is true or not true. So, I mean, it's an astounding thing, and it applies to so much of the way we relate to the world and are taught to relate to the world, is that we define existence and meaning and the mystery of life. Friends, that is the essence of what it means to take the knowledge of good and evil onto ourselves. Now, Freedom originally was given for the sake of loving relationship. That is the true purpose of freedom. But what you see here is is that um, the outcome of eating from the tree is actually the the disruption and the disconnection of this, right? Freedom was given for the sake of opening us upward and outward to God and to the world, and yet what sin does 
is it actually turns us inward. Instead of us turning us outward towards one another and God, it turns us inward. Um, I talk about this often, but you know, Luther and Augustine talked about sin as to be turned in upon oneself. And curvatus say, to be turned in on oneself, like an ingrown toenail, that's what sin does to us. It turns us in upon ourselves. And what's interesting here is that the knowledge that we gain from the tree, the knowledge that we gain from eating of the tree, um, rather than liberating us, enslaves us. Right? It's a non-liberating knowledge. Look, think about it. So the serpent was correct about their eyes being opened. So it says, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. So their eyes were opened from eating of the tree, and they gained a new knowledge of themselves, but it was not one that they expected. They become self-conscious of themselves as naked before the God and before them one another. And so they hide themselves, right? And so what kind of knowledge is this, right? This is not a, this is not a knowledge that leads to true enlightenment or empowerment, but it's actually a crippling self-knowledge, right? Because it's a knowledge that comes from the place of shame. It's a knowledge of shame. And what shame does is shame leads to disconnection. Disconnection from God, disconnection from one another, disconnection from ourselves. That's what this new knowledge gets us at the end, is disconnection. And so it is not a liberating knowledge. It is not freeing. It is the opposite. It is enslaving. It is isolating. And it is alienating. Well, you see this, how this happens, right? And so what you see is now that the, the man and the woman, they're, they're sort of isolated from themselves. They can no longer stand naked and unashamed before God and before one another, but they're alone in their freedom. And I think this is the, this is the thing you see all the time. We often prioritize and think of freedom as just simply my independence. And we always see like freedom as intention with loving relationships. So we refuse to to enter into relationships of love and commitment because we don't want to be locked down. We don't want to be bounded, right? We don't want to be restricted. But friends, this is, this is the illusion of freedom. This is not, to be in that place, to be always free, to do what you want, that is the illusion of freedom. It is not real freedom because it is aloneness. It is isolation. It is alienation. And again, the irony here is is that, you know, in eating of the tree, we want to become like God, but what ends up be happening in eating from the tree is we be actually become less than ourselves. We don't become like God. We actually become less than ourselves, and we lose dignity. Now, perhaps the most surprising twist in this whole story is that God's response is God's response to our disobedience. Now, you might expect that God would have just terminated the relationship then and there, right? Um, that he just kind of pulled the plug on the experiment. You know, I tried, you know, um, free, you know, love and freedom. It just didn't work. And so I'm just going to let the whole death thing play out. I'm not going to intervene. I'm just going to, I said they're going to die, and I'm going to let them die, and the human race will come to an end and a close, and I'll just have animals, right? God could have done this. He was free to do this. He would have been completely just in doing this. God was under no obligation whatsoever to continue um, in the relationship with human beings, nor to rescue us out of the mess that we had done. And yet, in freedom, 
God continued to engage us and to seek us out. And he just, that beautiful picture in the garden where, you know, the, the man and the woman, they hear the Lord God walking and they hide themselves, right? God's like, where are you? Why are you hiding yourselves? And God's looking for them, asking for them. I mean, that itself, it's just God's grace right there. God continues to seek us and to engage us. Now, because of their sin, um, God does expel them from the garden and severely curtail our freedom as creatures with the curses, which we'll explore in the weeks to come. But what God doesn't do is God does not turn away. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't turn away from us. He doesn't abandon us to our own devices. Rather, rather than free himself, in a sense, from this broken relationship, the Lord makes provision to rescue and to restore it. And he does this by entering into covenant with us. Now, this theme of covenant is, is not explicit, as you will get later on in the, in, in the Bible, in the history of Israel. But there's a way that, rather than pulling away from us, God enters into deeper promise with us, deeper deeper promise-making and keeping with us. And I think this is so important to see because it really captures the, the true meaning of freedom. God entering into covenant with us is not God surrendering his freedom. <laughs> Quite the opposite. It is God's expression of his freedom in love. Covenant is the expression of God's freedom to us in love. Again, true freedom is always for the sake of loving relationship. The clearest expression of this, um, of God's continued love for us in this story is God's provision of the animal skins. Um, Adam and Eve try to cover themselves, they feel their shame, and so they, they grab fig leaves and try to, try to create clothing to cover, cover themselves up, but it's, it's clearly inadequate. And what the Lord does is that, you know, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife, garments of skins, and clothe them. Um, and these garments were made out of animal skins, right? And so right here, we're already confronted with death, arguably the first real death, where God, there's the, the slaughter of an animal in order to cover over the sin of our misuse of our freedom and our shame so this is the very first sacrifice you see in the Bible, but as we know, it will be, not be the very last. The last sacrifice in the Bible is the one that Jesus Christ um, did on the cross, right? And this story already is sort of pointing us ahead to that future sacrifice that foreshadows the way that Jesus Christ will be uh, the garment that covers our shame. But I, I don't want to focus in conclusion just on the meaning of, of his sacrifice, but just Think about what he had to do and become in order to be a sacrifice. He had to become human, right? God Almighty became human. You think about the, the self-existent, the infinite one, the one with all power and all knowledge of the universe becomes human, taking the form of the servant. Again, like this for us is like the opposite of freedom. But God's freedom is never more perfectly expressed than in the incarnation. And his love for us as his children. God commits himself to the human race. As Karl Barth said, God does not want to be God without us. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we uh, give you thanks that in your freedom, you, rather than turning away from us because of our misuse, um, you turned towards us even more and you doubled down and you became a man and you gave your life to cover us. Lord, we live in confusing time and age when we are, we are taught from, from the very beginning of our lives to think of freedom as the way that we stand apart and we stand independent and that we self-create. But Lord, you gave us freedom to love you and to love one another. And so Lord, we're all on the journey of learning what it means to be creatures that love and freedom. And we pray that you um, turn us more and more and that we would know our deep dignity as image bearers, as those who love you, and then in turn can love one another. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.